This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 5. We Have Seen Everything As in the Italian island, the boats have been coming into the islands of Greece for years. And like the Italians, for years the Greek authorities had to try to deal with this problem on their own. Once again, there could hardly have been a more unfortunate country to have to deal with such a challenge. By 2015, the Greek economy had been in a debt repayment crisis for six years. While struggling with economic astringency, enforced by the other Eurozone countries, with Germany at the helm, Greece was also struggling with a humanitarian crisis along its ragged borders. As with the Italian islands, the migration went on for years before the rest of the continent even began to pay attention. And as with Lampedusa, the Greek islands are a prisoner not only of their geographical proximity to another continent, but their own history. The dozens of Greek islands within short sailing distance of the Turkish coastline makes the northern Aegean and Dodecanese islands an even softer underbelly of the continent than those nearest North Africa. Like Italy, the Greek islands were already so consumed with financial and social problems when the flow of arrivals increased that they too pushed the migrants on up into the mainland in the hope that they would find their way north from Greece and through into the rest of Europe. Throughout history, the vulnerability of this piece of coastline has been unusual even by the standards of the region. It is the reason why the Byzantines, Ottomans, and others all battled for these islands and held them at different times. From the northernmost parts of the island of Lesbos, you can see Turkey clearer than most Greek islands are visible one to another. Five miles of water is all that divides this portion of Europe from Turkey. You can see why the people smugglers get away with telling their charges that the final stretch of their journey into Europe consists of crossing a river. With a shorter journey time than the one from North Africa into Lampedusa, the going rate for the final part of this journey into Europe is 1500 US dollars. In the winter, when the waters can get rough, some of those lured to the shore see the rickety vessel they are being offered and refuse to get in. They are told that if they do not get in, they will still have to pay their $1,500, followed by another $1,500 for the boat that they do take. Once they are pushed off from shore, the boats take between 90 minutes and 2 hours to reach Greece. Unlike the smugglers from Libya into Italy, the people smugglers of Turkey do not bother to use wooden vessels for such a short crossing. Their preferred boats are plastic ones, and unlike like the great funeral pyres of wooden boats intermittently burned on Lampedusa, these plastic vessels cannot be burnt, nor can they be recycled on the island, so cheap is the type of plastic they are made from. But of course, so intermittently, big great piles of these plastic boats are collected and sent by a bigger boat to the Greek mainland for recycling. But of course the, of course the boats can still go down, in good weather and in bad. As with the inhabitants of Lampedusa, throughout all the years that the world took no interest in the locals on these Greek islands, they responded with a similar case of charity and history, aware of not just what was happening now, but also of their own history. Many of the families on the islands have their own memories of migration. When the, the Greco-Turkish War ended in 1922, these islands were flooded with Greek citizens fleeing Asia Minor. 
more than 3 million Greeks fled what is now Turkey via islands like Lesbos, where today one in three citizens is descended from these refugees. On the, on the days when the river between Turkey and Lesbos is dotted with boats like a low-key armada, one of the first sights many of the migrants see is the tiny village of Skalaskamnias on the northern coast of Lesbos. Its tiny port, with a couple of bar restaurants hugging the water, and its tiny chapel on the harbor's promontory, was founded by some refugees from 1922. Yet although movement and migration has been the story of these islands for centuries, what has happened in recent years is new. Not just in the regularity with which the numbers of arrivals have kept rising, but in the places from which they come. Although few islands are, islanders insist on the distinction, these newcomers are not Greeks fleeing conflict abroad and returning home. They are people fleeing conflicts far away, often having passed through many safe countries in the process. They also include a growing number of people fleeing poverty, joblessness, or a lack of prospects, and who see Europe as the answer to their problems and Greece as their way into Europe. As with the Italian points of entry, the flow into the Greek islands sped up in the wake of the Arab Spring, and in particular with the civil war in Syria. But again, as in Italy, the arrivals also came from further afield, from countries with insurgencies and unstable governments, not least Afghanistan, but also from countries that were allied to the European powers and with ostensibly stable governments, such as Pakistan. This flow of people who had made their way through four or five countries before getting to the launch sites to the shores of Turkey also came the long way around from, from Africa. But even in Greece, where this tide of people has been coming for years, it was 2015 that changed everything. Not because of anything new that had happened in the Far East or the Middle East or Africa, but because of something that had happened far to the north, in Germany. The broadcast news that told Africa and the Middle East about the life to be lived in Europe had also of course told Europeans about the lives of people in Africa and the Middle East. And few things made a greater impression on the evening television news than the stories of boats capsizing and sinking in the Mediterranean, the turning of the southern portion of Europe into a watery graveyard. After 2011, such stories of human misery that had already touched the hearts of those living in Italy and Greece slowly at first began to be noticed by the rest of Europe. Nowhere were they more commented upon and worried over than in Germany. But what was to happen developed against a backdrop that was far more propitious. An upsurge in, of migrants coming into Germany meant that already by 2014, immigration into the country had reached a 20-year high. That year, an estimated 200,000 people had claimed asylum in the country. As a response, some Germans began to feel security concerns, along with identity concerns, how could Germany cope if it had to take in refugees and asylum seekers at this rate, on top of the decades in which the country had, like everyone else, already opened its borders to people who were honestly or otherwise admitted as guest workers? What would be the likely impact on the country, given that most of these new arrival arrivals were also of the Muslim faith? During 2014, these often uttered private concerns began to be voiced more loudly on the streets. A movement calling itself Pegida, or People Against the Islam Islamization of the Occident-slash-West, began in Dresden and other Germanys that objected to the upsurge. In her New Year's message on the 31st of December in 2014, Chancellor Merkel singled out these movements for criticism. 
The German people, she insisted, must not have prejudice, coldness, or hatred in their hearts as these groups did. Instead, she urged the German people to a new surge of openness to refugees. She explained that wars and crises worldwide were creating more refugees than we have seen since the Second World War. Many literally escaped death. It goes without saying that we help them and take them in and take in people who seek refuge with us. She also talked about Germany's demographics and explained that with an aging population, this immigration that many people were worried about would in fact prove to be a gain for all of us. The following May, the Federal Interior Minister Thomas de Maizière announced in Berlin that the German government was expecting almost 500,000 refugees to arrive in the country that year. Then, in July of 2015, the human side of the migration story burst into the German news into the form of a 14-year-old Palestinian girl whose family had left Lebanon. On a live television program involving a question-and-answer session between children and the chancellor in Rostock, this girl told Merkel she was worried that her family might be deported. The chancellor's response epitomized the difficulty of meeting natural human sympathy with a wider political problem. She told the 14-year-old girl sitting in front of her that she seemed like a very likable person. But then the chancellor added that politics is hard. Oh my God. Thousands of thousands of other people were also in Lebanon, the chancellor told her. And if Germany said, you can all come, and everyone from Africa alone came, then she should realize that Germany cannot fit. Merkel promised that cases would be dealt with faster, but was clear that people will have to go, some people will have to go back. Then, in the type of gruesomely gripping moment that the producers and presenter clearly realized was about to make all the nightly news programs, as the chancellor prepared for another question, there was a noise from the young girl, and she had begun to cry. Merkel walked over to comfort her. There was a dispute with the presenter, who seemed to be hoping for an on-air amnesty. The huge recent upsurge of migrants from Greece and Italy was clearly on the chancellor's mind. Seized by the personal stories, much of the German media criticized Merkel for the coldness of her response. This coldness, if that is what it was, soon left. With both Greece and Italy allowing recent arrivals to push on up north into Europe, the next month the German Interior Ministry had already revised Germany's expected arrivals for 2015 from just under 500,000 to over 800,000, which was four times the number of arrivals in 2014. A week later, the ministry, along with the Federal Office for Migration and Refugees, pondered the question of what they would do with people coming up through Greece and Hungary and into Europe. Would they be sent back to Hungary as they ought to have been under the proper protocols? An agreement was reached that they would not be. On the 25th of August, this fact was announced on Twitter by the Office for Migration, which said, quote, We are presently largely no, no longer enforcing Dublin procedures for Syrian citizens, end quote. <clears throat> the message swiftly went around the world. Then, on the last day of August, the Chancellor made her most important statement. Before an audience of foreign journalists in Berlin, she announced, quote, German thoroughness is super, but now German flexibility is needed. Europe as a whole must move, and its states must share the responsibility for refugees seeking asylum. Universal civil rights were so far tied together with Europe and its history. If Europe fails on the question of refugees, its close connection with universal civil rights will be destroyed. It won't be the Europe we imagine." End quote. The German chancellor was opening the doors of Europe. 
and the words of encouragement she gave to her countrymen were motivational. For Schaffen das, we can do this. Germany, she insisted, was politically and economically strong enough to succeed in this task, just as it had succeeded with tasks in the past. Most of the media backed her up, and Merkel the Bold was the headline in The Economist, with the accompanying article claiming, On Refugees Germany's Chancellor is Brave, Decisive, and Right. Though it was not only Merkel's decision to make, nevertheless the German Chancellor's powerful statement dragged the whole continent with her, whether they wanted it or not. In a Europe whose borders had come down and in which free movement had become a doctrinal principle, the mass movement through Europe by people from outside began to cause continent-wide problems. Germany's neighbors saw hundreds of thousands of people walking through their territory on their way north into Germany. During 2015 alone, around 400,000 migrants moved through Hungary's territory alone. Fewer than 20 of them stopped to claim asylum in Hungary. And this great surge of people broke out all over the rest of Europe as well. Tens of thousands of people from the Balkans, who had otherwise been unable to find a legal way to go north into Germany, joined the great movement of people moving across the countries from the south. At the same time, the movement even further north swelled. The Swedish government announced an upsurge in its desire to take the flow, and soon, every day, thousands of people were heading into Denmark, sometimes to stay rather than moving on to Sweden. During 2015, more than 21,000 people applied for asylum in Denmark, three times the figure of two years before, but far more continued up into Sweden. Of course there were quibbles, and of course there were those who protested against this policy outright. But at this crucial movement, movement, moment, a movement that risked becoming depersonalized by sheer numbers suddenly took on a human face. Oh boy. Already at the end of August, as some domestic opposition to Merkel's policy had begun to be voiced, an abandoned truck with 71 dead migrants inside was found on an Austrian road, just as the German chancellor was arriving in Vienna for a meeting. The debate was already noisy with echoes. Then, two days after Merkel's key announcement, a family of Syrian Kurds set out in a plastic boat from Bodrum in Turkey, hoping to reach the Greek island of Kos. Their boat sank and among those who drowned was a three-year-old boy. His body was washed up, face down on a beach in Turkey where a photographer captured the image, and this image went around the world. An issue that was already a contest between head and heart, practicality and emotion, saw the heart override the rest of the system at this crucial juncture. The photograph dampened respectable opposition to Merkel's open-door policy in Europe. Opponents had to explain how they could be immune to the image of the dead boy. Newspapers that ordinarily called for tight immigration suddenly changed their tune to fit with their cover image. Some papers and politicians questioned whether this wasn't the time to start bombing Syria in order to alleviate such suffering. Meanwhile, actors and other celebrities took to Twitter with the hashtag #RefugeesWelcome and insisted that Europe must open its doors. To be opposed to this was suddenly to be indifferent to dead children. Unsurprisingly, even the British Prime Minister, who had struggled to resist any EU-enforced migrant quotas to date, buckled and agreed to start by allowing in a further 20,000 Syrian refugees, albeit over the course of five years. Dams broke elsewhere in Europe, too, with media cameramen running alongside migrants as they poured through fields, down roads, and across borders. 
For her part, Angela Merkel announced that there was no limit on the number of migrants Germany would accept, announcing, quote, as a strong, economically healthy country, we have the strength to do what is necessary, end quote. Over the four, next 48 hours, the New York Times reported a surge of migrant movement from Nigeria, among other countries, as people f saw that a window of opportunity had opened for them to citizenship in Europe. It is easier to scorn such decisions than it is to make them, and easier to make them than perhaps it should be. In each country that the continent's politicians were stuck in a moment akin to that of any person standing on a shore seeing a boat come in. If the people in front of you are struggling to get ashore, the instinct of most observers, certainly most modern Europeans, would be to help those in difficulty to safety. Very few would push them back into the sea. Only months after saying that politics was hard and trying to hold the line before the 14-year-old Lebanese girl, Angela Merkel had decided to show softness. Although her decision was taken on behalf of the continent rather than merely herself, the impulse she demonstrated was not an untypical one. The wish to welcome all comers ashore may not have been a natural compulsion through history, but it had become a natural one to Europeans now, and now its opposite seemed unimaginable. The inhabitants of Lesbos, like those other islands, are a perfect example of this. Their main port, Mytilene, is one of the nearest ports to Turkey. At Mytilene, too, the migrants' boat can see Europe in front of them when they set out. Illuminated and towering over the central point of the harbor is the dome of Saint, of Saint, Saint Therapon, named after the Bishop of Cyprus, massacred by the Arab Muslims as he said Mass. Inside is the sarcophagus of Bishop Ignatius. Ignatius, a leading opponent of the Ottoman occupation in the 19th century. Along the port front are shops, bars, and hotels, including the Sappho Hotel, a name replicated everywhere on the island from which the ancient poetess came. With a population of 87,000, this is in size and population one of the bigger Greek islands. In the heat of the day, the smell of oil, fish, and brackish water makes the vast harbor less appetizing than it at first looks. But by evening, with a breeze, the port front bars and cafes come alive and buzz as the sound systems pump out pop music. As in Lampedusa, the contrast can be jarring. On the Italian island, an aid worker had described the occasional moments in the summer months when a boatload of migrants would be brought in from the sea, corpses among the living, while the music of the better-off Italians who had come to the island in the summer to party could be heard along the cliff edges and beaches. In Mytilene, migrants who have often escaped from or walked through their own version of hell take their first footsteps into their new life in a scene that shows the best of Greece's good life. In 2015, there was a period during which people were arriving in Mytilene, a town of 30,000, at a rate of 8,000 a day. Boats pulled up on the long side of the coastal road between the airport and the town, and some migrants walked to town. Others hailed a taxi when they got out of the boat and asked the driver to take them to Moria, the main reception center behind the town. Local drivers remarked on the fact that all the people from the boats knew in advance that the taxi fare to Moria was 10 euros. As in the Italian islands, so in the Greek islands the local authorities left, felt left alone. The mayor of Lesbos instigated his island's reaction. The mayor of nearby Samos did the same. Did they cooperate? No, the mayor's office says, everyone went their own way. But even on each individual island, the organization is complicated. 
When the flow became a flood, the former army camp of Moria was converted into a temporary center, that is, under the control of the relevant ministry in Athens. Whereas the other camp on Lesbos, Karatepe, is under the control of the local municipality. Whenever you ask why, people sigh. In any case, for a time the effort to get everybody processed and quickly given papers for their onward journey worked well. Around two days after arrival, the migrants would be backed down at the port and off on another boat, this time a ferry, to Athens or Kavala, just along the coast from Thessaloniki. From there, the Greek authorities did not mind losing them. Most, as they knew, would not want to stay in a country where unemployment was bad enough for the locals. They would keep traveling through southeastern Europe and up towards the countries they thought would receive them, particularly Germany and Sweden. When the process took longer, because the numbers overwhelmed the authorities, unrest began. In September 2015, as the inflow resulting from the German Chancellor's invitation grew to its height, there were serious disturbances between some of the migrants on Lesbos and local riot police. After processing delays meant some migrants had been on the island for two weeks, crowds of them down in the port chanted asylum and also, we want to go to Athens. Some Syrian migrants threw stones and bottles at the police while others tried to stop them. Although there were temporary solutions, during the winter of 2015 and into 2016, the process began to stall. The numbers kept coming as before, but the initial enthusiasm of the rest of Europe was already beginning to flag. At one point, there were 20,000 refugees in Mytilene. Neither Moria nor Karatepe is designed to keep even a quarter of that number. But the people of Mytilene did not turn on the arrivals, though they were close to being outnumbered by them. With both migrant centers and overflows, tents sprang up across the center of the city, on any available green or rubbly place, on roundabouts and sidewalks. When the winter was at its worst, locals opened their homes or cleared out their garages to house migrants trying to escape the worst of the winter. In the summer of 2016, when deals with foreign powers and warnings from within Europe were meant to have stopped the flow of people to these islands, the boats kept coming. But what emergency deal in March between the EU and Turkey had somewhat eased the pressure and stopped the flow? In return for a payment from the EU to the Turkish government of 6 billion euros, as well as a visa fee travel across Europe for many Turks, the number of migrants coming into Europe had lessened considerably. During August, the arrivals to Lesbos were down to a couple of hundred, sometimes a couple of dozen a day. One night that month, when the sea was glassily calm, three boats managed to come across, two to the north of the island and one up to the harbor in Mytilene. A fourth was stopped by the Turkish naval forces, who are said by migrants and aid workers alike to take a laissez-faire approach to the boats, which the EU-Turkey deal should force them to turn back. In reality, when they see them coming, they stop some but let others through. The island's second facility, Karatepe, set up by the munici municipality in 2015, is aimed at housing families, women and children, though not un unaccompanied minors who are placed in houses. Although Karatepe has a capacity for 1,500 migrants, during parts of August 2016 it was only half full. Even though the recent coup in Turkey had put the agencies on alert for the possibility of a restart of the previous summer's camp flows, at this point the island was comparatively calm. At the camp's entrance, there were opportunities for providing a service and for making money. Stall holders had set up food vans and drink stalls. 
The only other person trying to get into the camp was a young man from the Congo who was based up the road at the camp in Moriah, but had come to visit his sister and her children at Karatepe. Outside, he drank beer and smoked while we waited in the midday sun. He said that if it was not possible for him, he said it was not possible for him to remain in the Congo. He had relations with the country's political opposition, and so it was no longer f- safe for him for him to be there. He said he was university educated, worked in a psychiatric hospital in the Congo, and could not get his phone to work to get through to his sister in Karatepe. People are not locked in, but nor can anybody simply wander out. Inside the camp is all that a poor makeshift shelter designed for more than a thousand people can be. There are tin huts for families to live in, as well as medical huts and other necessities. A children's football pitch has been set up, and there is a small, tin-covered amphitheater for occasional musical performances to lift spirits. The elderly and disabled, like the ancient Syrian man in the traditional kefia, staring out of his tin hut, have special facilities, including toilets, away from the large complex set up for everyone else. The people in this camp are mostly Syrian, perhaps 70% today. The next largest group are, are Afghans and Iraqis. The woman from Athens, or the woman from Athens who runs the camp on behalf of the municipality, is very proud of it and the innovative attitude she says they foster here. Here, the people are not called refugees or immigrants. She insists they are visitors. The camp is progressive in other ways, which is why they are happy to allow journalists with the required permits to enter. The visitors are served three meals a day, and unlike in other camps, including Mariah, they are not made to queue. Meals are delivered to the doors of the huts. Clothes are provided to change into when they are needed. A family from Syria sit by their hut, while a young man, almost not ready to shave, his face still pimply, uses an electric shaver to remove a little stubble, a mirror in the other hand. A little girl of two or three has lost one of her shoes and struggles in the dust to put it on. We help her. She gets back up, runs on, and falls over again. Okay. For all the advantage of advantages of being in the camp at Karatepe, the problem for the visitors here is in the summer of 2016 is that they are stuck. Since the migrant flow of 2015, the other countries of Europe have, have shut their borders, meaning there is no opportunity for the flow across Europe of last year to recommence. These visitors cannot even flow up to Athens because the authorities realize that if a bottleneck is created on the mainland, they risk creating entirely new problems. And so where once they would have spent no more than 48 hours in this place, and where a fortnight has caused troubles, some of these families have been here for months. Outside the camp, buying chips and sauce, are a girl of 17 and her 7-year-old's younger sister. They are from Aleppo and have been here for between 4 and 5 months. They now have lessons here, and there is an attempt to teach other skills, including music, at the camp. But they do not know when they will go, or where they and the other visitors will go when they leave. Understandably, the authorities and NGOs who help run and fund the camps are very, very, very wary about letting visitors speak with journalists. Many are traumatized, and in Lampedusa, nobody knows exactly what to do with the migrants or what restrictions, if any, are legal or possible. But along the road and down on the beach is an impromptu collection of tents. On the highway wall opposite someone has graffitied in huge capital letters, Refugees, condemn the deal. No person is illegal. Welcome, refugees. Similar messages are scrawled in Spanish. 
But if you were to come, if you were to come off a boat at this point, as some of the migrants do, these are the first words you will see as you enter Europe. The collection of tents is run by a no, no borders group. A young German called Justice comes over smoking a rolled up cigarette. He is from Dresden, he mentions apologetically. A fortnight ago, he and a group of like-minded Germans, French, and Swiss people opened a social center in a decrepit ruin of a building on the other side of the road. It was not intended to be an asylum center, but a day center to give the migrants somewhere to come and escape the tedium of the camps. But after only a few days, the bank that owned the building, fearing that they were setting up an illegal camp, threw them out. So here they are on the beach opposite, with a few large makeshift tents trying to keep their movement going. Oda, a German in her 40s from Hanover, who is coping badly in the midday sun, explains, quote, It is not enough to simply keep going to demonstrations and chanting no borders. It is also necessary to do something, end quote. Here is where this group, mainly comprised of Germans, are trying to do their bit to help. It is ramshackle, underfunded, and slightly shambolic. A family who walked blithely past all the refugee signs and come each day to this encampment to help themselves to tea turn out to be a local Roma family who already live on Lesbos. Oda shows the photographs of the building they have just had to vacate. On the wall in the main rooms of what had been their social center, they had the whitewashed the walls and hung brightly colored baubles. The center's rules were painted in blue and red on the walls. They were bullet-pointed, no racism, no violence, no sexism, and no homophobia. Oda and her colleagues say that what the 50 or so people a day who currently come to the group's tents really want is not the tea, the water, or some of the three to 600 portions of food a day they hand out to supplement the food people get at the main camps, what the Afghans, Pakistanis, Moroccans, Eritreans, evenly mixed, who come here want, say, is people to respect them. They had recently met a Christian from Pakistan whose family had been killed by the Taliban. Asked what he wanted most now, he said, a smile. But the German No Borders group are not universally welcomed. Aside from their problems with the former landlord and the island authorities, some locals are suspicious of their presence. And not only because they think the presence of the group suggests that the Greeks cannot cope, one local says the groups are bad people. They are political activists. But other locals are helpful. Some even give extra aid. A local vegetable dealer gives them free supplies. And at least here, unlike up the road at Mariah, people do not have to stand in 200-meter long queues for food. Complaints of food shortages, food poisoning, and other squalid conditions at the Mariah camp make it clear why this facility is one that the authorities refuse to allow anyone to visit. Three 16-year-old Afghans explained that they were not even allowed to take photos at the Mariah facility, where there are currently 3,000 people. The nearest a non-migrant can get to is even the gate, but even from the outside it is clear that this is a different proposition to Karatepe. The former army camp of Mariah now has three or four hundred sections of barbed wire on each side. Its present occupants are from all over. Whereas most are from Syria, Iraq, Africa, and Afghanistan, there are also migrants from Bangladesh, Myanmar, and Nepal. A young Eritrean explains his route to Sudan where he took a plane to Iraq, traveled to Turkey, and from there to the beach on Lesbos, on which he ended on which we end up sitting. Oh. The Afghans, by contrast, come through Iran, and sometimes via Pakistan, before getting to Turkey. All say that these days, they do not meet the smugglers they pay to traffic them here. Everything is done by phone, 
with instructions given to them at steps along the way. Interesting. A nine-year-old Afghan boy with his father explains his route. He has now been in Europe for two months. The father signals that he would like to speak in private. We find a ruined building on the seafront in which he tells their story. They came in on a boat that, had went, that went down twice during what should have been the hour's journey from Turkey. On the second sinking, they were picked up by the Greek Coast Guard. He is 31 years old and has come with his wife, his two sons, and two daughters. The girls are five and one and a half. Handsome, strongly built, and with a single quiff of white hair in the center of his head of black hair, he is wearing sports clothes he has clearly been given since arrival. In Afghanistan, he had a job in the Ministry of Education, with responsibility for schools in the Herat region. As the Taliban regained their strength, he didn't, or he received a phone call from them telling him to leave his job. He didn't, and so they kidnapped him and jailed him for three days. While he was there, they broke both his hands. Each has large protruding lumps where bone sticks out at the wrists. He says he managed to escape from the jail, but stumbling in the Afghan mountains, he injured himself further, breaking his head open on the rocks when he fell. In two months at home, he was unable to work. But after that, he did go back to work, at which point the Taliban kidnapped him again, and this time, they kept him for 21 days. They tortured him, and the scars on his, are on his side as well as his arms. They also, as the Afghan who from the camp acts as our translator puts it, attacked him from the backside. You know what he means. Each night the Taliban raped him. While they did so, they told him that I no longer had a god, that they were my god, and that this meant I must do anything they asked of me. Oh, this is intense. At this, okay, skipping the rest of this paragraph. But once home, he fled, taking his family with him and without allowing the Taliban to get their man into the position he wanted. Oh, because they were trying to plant someone. When he arrived in Turkey, I'm going to skip the guy's story and go back to, like, the political stuff. Hearing such things at such times from people who have been in such places, the instinct that Chancellor Merkel and her ministers displayed in 2015 can seem eminently justified. She and her colleagues landed on a portion of the answer by recognizing that our continent is probably doing the only thing that a civilized people can do in rescuing such people, welcoming them and trying to give them safety. But this generous instinct may well prove, both for the people who have crossed the water and for the continent trying to welcome them in, them in to be the easiest part of the journey. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.